You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Well, welcome to Redemption. <clears throat> I have a suspicion that the reduced temperature was a plot or an attempt by some to slow down my delivery. We'll see how it works. But it's actually warming up in here thanks to uh, some extra over and above efforts from members of the congregation to bring their, uh, to bring their heaters and heat it up. I'm excited to be here. Um, <clears throat> I'm very grateful for everything this church has to offer. Uh, just last week, um, had the opportunity to sit with one of the outgoing elders and have them pray over my wife and I very graciously. Um, and uh, at that same service, Matt Penner comes up to me at the end of the service and says, Brian, I hear you're preaching on Jude next week. I'm excited to dig into Jude um, and see what God has to say. Um, those are the reasons that my wife and I come to this church. And I, w- I would encourage us, in spite of everything that's going on, the reasons that we are coming to church have not changed. And that we continue to look forward to what God's doing here in this body and through his local um, body of Christ in Old here at, at Old Redemption. We'll be working through the book of Jude this morning. If you've read through or are familiar with our text today, you'll know that it's a challenging passage of scripture. And you, much like myself, may be wondering what I'm going to do, what I'm up here, uh, what I'm doing up here expositing it. Thankfully, what you need to hear today will not be from me, but will be from God's word through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, please raise your hand. Uh, One of the ushers can come bring one to you. Um, And if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that Bible home. Uh, If you're looking for the book of Jude, it's in the second last book in the Bible, so just before the book of Revelation. Once every two years, Ligonier Ministries commissions a survey to gauge the theological temperature of the United States. It's a comprehensive survey that interviews a large sample size of a cross-section of all Americans, religious or not. The subset of results from evangelical Christians are the most interesting or shocking. This online survey was conducted in January of 2022 and and reviewing the results for evangelical Christians only, we find the following. God accepts the worship of all religions, 56% agree. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, 43% agree. Everyone sins, but most people are good by nature, 57% agree. Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God, 65% agree. The Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today, 28% agree. And you can see on the screen there, the Bible is not literally true, 26% agree. Again, we're not bothering to look at the survey results of the general population. Those are both appalling and not surprising. We're only looking at the results from evangelical Christians, which are just appalling. These unbiblical unbiblical views on God, creation, and reality certainly didn't start in 2022. 
In fact, they didn't even start last century or the century before. No, they started at the beginning of time when Satan uttered the words, did God really say? Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so began the battle for truth and sound doctrine. And so it's fitting that in the second last book of the biblical canon, we find the book of Jude with a sole focus of warning us about the dangers of false teaching. That is, the twisting of truth the omitting of parts of truth, and outright heresy. As much as we like to think that on an individual basis we have the ability to distinguish between truth and falsity, the record, or our record, is clear about our nature. Jesus Christ makes a special effort to call attention to the fact that the road is narrow and that we are easily led astray. Luke 13, 23, 25. <clears throat> And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open it to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. <clears throat> Matthew seven thirteen to 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Oftentimes I believe that we as believers can be lulled into a false sense of security, that we are too clever to have the wool pulled over our eyes, that we are too discerning to be seduced by lies and drawn in by the siren's call of false doctrine. But the reality is we all have the propensity to be sucked into believing lies, veering off into the ditch, and that is dangerous on the road of life. In August of 2009, Mark Saylor from Chula Vista, California, just a few miles south of San Diego, dropped his vehicle off for servicing at a local dealer and picked up his loaner, Lexus ES. That evening, he was driving down Highway 125 to soccer practice with his wife, daughter, and brother-in-law. <clears throat> In what would become one of the most widely replayed 911 calls of all time, Mark's brother-in-law, sitting in the back seat, dials 911 to report that their accelerator is stuck on full throttle that the vehicle is continuing to accelerate down the freeway at over 120 miles per hour and that they had no way to stop the vehicle. During the course of the short 911 call, their vehicle continuing to accelerate enters an intersection, collides with another vehicle, leaves the highway and crashes down a ravine. Everyone on board perishes. This crash set off what we came to know as the sticky accelerator, the runaway Toyota or the sudden acceleration scandal that rocked the Toyota Motor Corporation in the following years. Hundreds of people came forward with similar stories. There were congressional hearings, exposés, seven massive recalls affecting 10 million vehicles. Even NASA got involved. As many as 90 people were estimated to have died in Toyota vehicles that mysteriously accelerated. But the truth behind the scandal is not only widely unknown, it's a powerful and poignant illustration of how we are so easily led astray. The fact is that every major manufacturer has experienced such claims and incidents, but none received the media attention that this one did. 
Several explanations were proposed to explain what happened. Faulty floor mats, bugs in the software code, defects in the braking systems. But these explanations were largely the product of speculation, conjecture, and in some cases, outright deception and fraud. You see, from the findings of the subject matter experts, including NASA, who were involved in the technical analysis of the collisions themselves, three key facts emerged. Number one, braking always wins. In every single test ever conducted in which a car was placed into full acceleration, kept in full acceleration, simply pressing the brake pedal, stopped the vehicle every single time. No exceptions. Number two, the affected drivers likely didn't actually know the exact location of the pedals. Across all the incidents, the vehicles were almost always new to the driver. They were rentals, they were loaners, or the vehicle was borrowed. And the drivers were predominantly old or short. The drivers were driving vehicles where they would not have been accustomed to the position of the pedals, nor would the vehicle seat or pedals have been adjusted for the driver. But interestingly and most importantly, number three, the drivers did not brake. The drivers were actually pressing the accelerator by mistake when they thought they were pressing the brake. Experts knew this because all modern cars, much like an airplane, have a black box that records the actions of both the car and the driver. And in virtually every sudden acceleration incident, the brakes were not even touched. The evidence was clear. The issue at hand was not anything else but driver error. But that's not what people like to hear. That they are at fault. That they are wrong, that they've made a mistake. It's much more comforting to blame something else, to be able to name someone else as being at fault, to ignore the facts so that we can maintain our delusion of innocence. And so in spite of the facts, during the course of the scandal, Toyota would pay a $1.2 billion fine to the US government. They would be forced to pay $1.1 billion in class action lawsuits and settle an additional 400 separate lawsuits. Largely because of the propensity mankind has to believe what he wants to believe, not because it's true, but because it's convenient and comforting. And so most people walked away from the scandal drawing the conclusion that there was egregious product defects, negligence, and even cover-ups. But the truth was that all the facts pointed to one thing, driver error. And so as we turn our attention to the book of Jude, I want each one of us to have a firm grip on the fact that we all have the ability to be drawn into deception. We've all been deceived at one point or another. And in fact, not only are we susceptible to deception from others, we're prone to deceive ourselves. The book of Jude is a stark warning against false teachers and their false teaching, highlighting the dangers of false teaching and our potential for driver error as we hurtle down the narrow road of life. Turn with me to Jude as we look at the first 10 verses. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority 
but left their proper dwelling. He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they were destroyed by all that they like unreasoning animals understand instinctively. Our goal for our time today is that we would, number one, understand the context of the book of Jude, who wrote it, who it was written to, and why. Number two, that we would gain understanding around some of the more troubling passages of the book or roadblocks in the book. This book quotes from apocryphal literature, including, literature, including the Assumption of Moses and the book of One Enoch, and neither of which are the inspired word of God. Their presence in the book can be a distraction for us in understanding the important message of the book, and we will seek to frame these in such a way that they do not distract. And number three, that the Holy Spirit would develop in each one of us a deep longing for and sensitivity for sound doctrine, that we'd know it when we hear it, and we'd have the conviction to reject it when we don't. Let's commit this time to the Lord. Dear God, it's not lost to me um, that I as a an unworthy and undeserving sinner stand here in the pulpit preaching against false teaching that I run the risk of committing the very same sin your word warns against. And I plead with you to be right here, right now, speak through me and in spite of me to deliver your truth to us all today. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Verses one and true. We meet our driving instructor, the author. So let's get our bearings and let's identify him. Jude 1, a servant of God, <clears throat> or a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. The Greek word behind our English Jude is usually translated Judah or Judas. Now we're almost familiar with Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, and he is not the author of this book. However, there are four other Judas or Judases in the New Testament. Judas the Galilean, a revolutionary for the book of Acts. Judas the son of James, one of the twelve disciples. Judas, also called Barabbas, an early Christian prophet in Acts. But I would argue that none of these are the Judas that ruled the book of Jude. Jesus also had a brother named Judas. Turn with me to Mark 3. Sorry, to Mark 6, chapter, Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And it's this Judas that we could be quite certain wrote our text today. And the key to identifying this is actually based on Jude's reference as a brother of James. The James mentioned here is without a doubt the prominent leader in the early church who wrote the book of the same name. This James was also a brother of the Lord. A fair question would then be, why didn't Jude instead introduce himself as a brother of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Wouldn't it have been a far simpler and more obvious way to reference who he was? One reason would be that he rightly saw more significance in being a servant of his Lord than being his brother. 
It's important to remember that Jude or Judas didn't accept his brother as the Messiah until after his brother's death and resurrection. Mark 6.4 goes on to say, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Jude is writing the inspired word of God. He's not here to leverage his status as Jesus' little brother. He's here to glorify his Savior. So Jude's the author. When? Well, we can bracket the writing of this book to somewhere between AD 40 and 80. Many scholars would place the date more specifically around AD 70, making it one of the last books of the New Testament to be written. And who's it written to? Let's look at uh, the second part of the first verse. In verse 2, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Jude is writing to believers. In terms of the audience, given the reference to the Jewish non-canonical books of one Enoch and the Assumption of Moses, we can be fairly certain that Jude is writing to a Jewish Christian community. And furthermore, given the fact that the condemned lifestyle of these false teachers is most closely associated with Gentiles, we can also conclude that this community of Jewish Christians is located within a Gentile society, somewhere in the Eastern Mediterranean world. And finally, it's important to know that there is a striking similarity between Jude and 2 Peter 2. The table shown here lists the similarities between the two passages, and they are significant. There is definitely a parallel between the two passages that we need to be aware of as we study them. There are a number of competing theories about who borrowed from whom, or whether both borrowed from a third source. Regardless of which is the case, the one safe conclusion we can draw from these similarities is that both were fighting the same types of false teaching, and both were more concerned about condemning the false teaching than they were describing it. And with that context under our belt, let's move from the salutation and greetings in verse 1 and 2 into the heart of the letter. Interestingly, most New Testament letters would move into a thanksgiving and prayer after the salutation and greeting, but Jude does not. And there's definitely something we can understand from his urgency as he moves directly from the theme into the theme and occasion of his letter. And so verses 3 and 4 become our row book, our row map for the book. Verse 3 begins with the original intent or theme of the letter. Verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. Jude was originally wanting to write to these believers about our salvation, the defining, definitive, unifying joy that all believers share. But he can't. Something has come up, and it's come to his attention. Another matter that is serious enough to displace the topic of salvation has emerged, and Jude needs to redirect his attention. And so in the second half of verse 3, Jude will shift his focus to a different topic, and carries this through to the end of verse 16. However, at the end of his letter, in Jude 17, he will eventually return to the original theme and intent of his letter and write about our common salvation. Carrying on in verse 3, Jude describes the urgent matter, the occasion that has emerged that will define the majority of his letter. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Here is now the matter at hand, a warning against the false teachers and false doctrine that has crept in and is distorting the gospel, to put it mildly. This is the thrust of the letter. 
It's a stern warning about false teaching, and the point here is to call out the fact that the false teachers and false teaching exist. But this is a rich and descriptive sentence. Jude says so much more than just that. So let's take just a moment to identify the four components of his description. Number one, they are in our blind spot. They crept in unnoticed. Number two, these guys are kamikaze drivers. They were condemned from the very beginning. Number three, they are changing and altering the gospel. And number four, they're ultimately denying Christ Jesus. Now before we proceed into the rest of the book, we need to prepare ourselves for some roadblocks and distractions along the way. It's important to note that Jude is using a rhetorical writing style in his letter. And to clarify, rhetorical simply means to be persuasive, to impress your point upon your reader or listener. We all take for granted the fact that we use persuasive speech to advance our ideas and opinions. But at the time of Jude's writing, this would have been a relatively new development, only just emerging for the first time in the centuries surrounding Christ's time on earth, as a result of Roman Greco influences in society. I think it's safe to say that Jude, like many of the New Testament writers, is himself employing this rhetorical writing style. And as part of crafting his persuasive message, Jude is going to reference relevant and contemporary writings from his time. Just as I reference several contemporary examples to illustrate a point, just as most preachers do, these were examples not from the Bible. It was a recent event that you and I can hopefully easily relate to and understand to help to understand a potentially abstract biblical concept. We use non-biblical illustrations to teach biblical truths. It's a basic and fairly obvious concept. And so, Jude will also reference recent and contemporary examples from his day, which were themselves not part of the Old Testament canon and are not part of the biblical canon today. And we don't have to fear that or be worried about that. We'll unpack these references for the illustrations that they are. So with the roadmap in front of us, verse three identifying the theme of the letter, our common salvation, to which Jude will return in verse 17, and verse four pointing us to the thrust of the book, a warning against false teaching, Let's drive ahead to verse 5, where we begin our examination of false teachers and false teaching. In verses 5 to 7, Jude will provide three examples of rebellion and false teaching from the Old Testament. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The first example in verse 5 is, God's, is, is a rebellion against God's direction. Let's unpack our first collision report. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. This is Israel's desert generation. This took place in the wilderness in the Sinai Desert, um, roughly 1443 BC. And what happened, the Lord rescued Israel from Egypt, and after which Israel failed to obey God and enter the promised land. Instead, they did what was popular and comforting and listened to the overwhelming majority of the spies, 10 of 12, who were sent to investigate the promised land. And as a result, God destroyed an entire generation. Turn with me to Numbers 14, 32 to 35. 
But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, and you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. What can we learn from this? Rejecting God's direction leads to physical death and physical consequences. In the original Greek, Jude includes the word hapax to modify the word saved or delivered, such that the meaning becomes delivered once for all. Similarly, he uses the word deuteron to modify the word destroyed, such that the meaning becomes destroyed afterwards. Delivered once for all is a clear reference to the, and a parallel to salvation. Christ's work in salvation is a singular event. And even though Israel was rescued once for all, they were destroyed afterwards because they listened to false teachers. Just because we're rescued from our sins doesn't mean we can presume on God's grace and mercy. There are consequences for rebelling against his direction. In Jude 6, we get our second Old Testament example. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in, external, in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. In the second example, Judas now referencing angels who rebelled against God, did not stay within their own position of authority, and were punished and brought into bondage. At this point, we hit our first potential roadblock or distraction. There can be some perceived ambiguity about what exactly this event is that Jude's referring to. To be clear, we know this event happened. We have a clear description of it elsewhere in the biblical canon. Revelation 12, 7 to 9 says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. But the book of Revelation was written after Jude's writing, and so Jude would not have had these words in view as he wrote his letter. The writings he would have had in view were the Old Testament and some additional intertestamental, also called apocryphal writings. Writings that occurred after the Old Testament was closed and before the New Testament was written. And in terms of identifying the historical and therefore biblical basis for the fall of the angels, there are limited Old Testament references for such an event. There are three potential references in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, which reference this event. But Genesis 6, 1-4 is also a strong and compelling description of the event that Jude is referring to. <clears throat> when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Further to this, 
in verses 14 and 15, Jude will quote directly from the book of One Enoch, and One Enoch is and was a non-canonical book that was very much a part of Jewish tradition. But we can learn something here because the verses he quotes from One Enoch are themselves directly referencing the Genesis 6 account. Based on that, we can be reasonably confident that Jude has Genesis 6 in view as he describes the fall of angels. Now with that roadblock cleared, let's move to the text itself. At this point, I trust that we're clear about who's involved. It's angels who have rejected God's order and design. And this is taking place on earth. Before the flood, in fact, one would argue that this ancient or this incident is the driving force behind God's decree in Genesis 6-7, where he says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And so these angelic created beings reject God and suffer a damning punishment. Our learning here is that rejecting God's dominion leads to binding in darkness. And finally, in verse 7, Jude points to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. A biblical type is a symbol or draft sketch that represents or points to something else. Types are usually found in the Old Testament and point to something in the New Testament. This is without a doubt one of the most ubiquitous types within all of the Old Testament. The very name of the perverted act itself is rooted in the historical name of Sodom. Jude 7 says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual activity and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This involves Sodom and Gomorrah in the location of Sodom and Gomorrah. It takes place around 2091 to 2066 BC. And what happened here? Some commentators or critics have attempted to define the act of rebellion in Sodom and Gomorrah around the fact that men sought sexual relations with the angels sent to rescue Lot and have used this distinction to remove the condemnation for homosexuality. But this is a prime example of an utterly false doctrine that finds no support within the immediate text nor the rest of the Old Testament. It is clear that the men of Sodom and Gomorrah had no knowledge that the men sent to rescue Lot were angels. As such, they could not be accused of desiring to have sexual relations with angels, full stop. The rebellion here is one against God's design, man seeking to have unnatural relations with other men, full stop. And as a result of their immoral lust, they are completely destroyed with fire and brimstone. Talk about an actual full stop. Our lesson here is found in the last part of verse 7, rejecting and rebelling against God's design ends in our eternal judgment. And so we have three examples from the Old Testament that demonstrate the consequences of false teachers and false teaching. And finally, let's note that rather than list them in chronological order, we've pointed out the dates here, and you can see they're not listed in chronological order. Judah's chosen to list them in the order of ascending punishments. Physical death in verse 5, binding in darkness in verse 6, and punishment of eternal fire in verse 7. With these highly illustrative and persuasive pictures in front of our minds, Jude now shifts to his condemnation of the false teachers. Let's turn to verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. He said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Yet in like manner. In other words, just as I've illustrated in the examples above, these people, 
referring here to the false teachers in verse 4, and relying on their dreams. This can be a trickier phrase to understand on the face of the words alone. Some commentators would suggest that this implies the false teachers are living in a dream or fantasy world. And given their false teachings, teachings, they very much are. But the word here for dreams or visions refers to the visions that prophets receive. It's the same word we find in Acts 2. Quoting the prophet Joel, your old men will dream dreams. It's also the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to the visions of false prophets. Based on that, Jude is much more likely referring to the fact that these false teachers have based their beliefs and their false teachings and their moral behaviors on what they believe to be a revelatory experience. In other words, they believe they have some basis for what they are doing. Beware, false teachers are not without conviction. Another translation of verse 8 reads, In the same way these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff at supernatural beings. Verse 8 goes on to identify the sins and false teachers that the false teachers are guilty of committing. Immoral living, rejecting God's authority, and scoffing at the supernatural. We can see direct links between the sins Jude is accusing these false teachers of committing and the examples he's just highlighted from the Old Testament. Let's look at the first one. Corrupting God's design or defiling the flesh in verse 8a. Jude's use of the word flesh here is a clear implication that there was some sort of sexual sin involved. While the example from Sodom and Gomorrah points to homosexuality specifically, there are any other number of ways to corrupt God's design for sex. Extramarital sex, lust, pornography. In fact, society's thirst for new avenues of sexual perversion seems almost limitless. And Jude's accusation here is not that they are teaching this immorality, but that they are living it. The Old, exa- the Old Testament example makes it clear there is a costly penalty for corrupting God's design. And sadly, none of us likely have to imagine the implications for churches and fellow believers when these sins are committed by its leaders. And it's for this reason that we place and enforce the highest standards for the conduct of our teachers. Mike Pence, the born-again U.S. Vice President, was famously derided by some of the media for his personal rules of conduct that included requiring that any aide who had to work late to assist him be male, never dining alone with a woman other than his wife, and not attending an event where alcohol is served unless his wife was there. We should never question or bristle at ultra-careful disciplines and safeguards that pastors, teachers, and leaders put in place. The consequences of the pitfalls they guard against are dire. Second part of verse 8, rejecting God's direction, rejecting authority. Jude calls attention to their rejection of authority. It's likely that Jude has two types of authority in view here. Certainly God asks all leaders and teachers to submit to himself and his word. Verse 4 makes this clear. But God has also placed structures of human authority all around those that lead and teach. The most obvious and biblical are the authority and accountability amongst the elders. God has prescribed and directed a model of elder leadership that we all well know is challenging to live out. But the reality is, it's these structures that God directs us towards to protect against false teaching. And those that reject this authority face a serious condemnation. And finally, the last part of verse C, or the last part of verse 8, 1 into 9, is denying God's dominion, blaspheming glories. Jude points out that false teachers deny God's dominion when they blaspheme glories. It's fair to connect this with the Old Testament example of fallen angels, and in fact, Jude goes on in verse 9 to provide a quick illustration to help make this point. The point being that false teachers were themselves 
dismissing the power present in the spiritual realm. Let's anchor ourselves in that simple statement. That's the simple point that Jude is making here. It's going to get complex as we have to deal with another apocryphal scripture, but his point is clear. These false teachers were themselves dismissing the power present in the spiritual realm. And so as we look at our next roadblock, <coughs> Jude uses glorious ones to refer to, to fallen angels, and he references another apocryphal book. The consensus reading on these verses is as follows. Glories or glorious ones could refer to both angels or fallen angels. Both bear the impression of their glorious creator, fallen or not. However, both the illustration in the following verse and 2 Peter 2, 10, 11 confirms that Jude is referring to the latter or fallen angels. 2 Peter 2 is our clear parallel text to Jude, and we use it now to provide the foundation for our understanding. 2 Peter 2, 10. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Clearly, the glorious ones are distinct from the angels. I'll read that again. As they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, these are two distinct groups. <clears throat> and then Jude's example in verse 9 comes from another apocryphal book, for which few transcripts remain, but it's most likely titled The Assumption of Moses. To be clear, this book was written in and around the first century BC. It was not written by Moses, but it was very much a part of Jewish religious culture. Remember, Jude is writing to Jewish believers. There is no indication that Jude believes this book to be the inspired word of God. In fact, there is no indication that Jude even believes the illustration he references to be true. But Jude is attempting to communicate something about the spiritual realm, and we need to appreciate that illustrations regarding the spiritual realm are tough to come by because it's, well, spiritual. It's largely unseen. From that perspective, it's not surprising he's going to lean on some well-known contemporary literature to describe his biblical point. Much like if a preacher today were to draw on depictions from Frankie Peretti books to paint a picture about the spiritual realm. Is Frankie Peretti the inspired word of God? No. Can we use Peretti's stories to conjure up images and pictures to help us understand biblically accurate principles about the spiritual realm? Of course. And I would submit to you, that is what we have here. The story of Jude quotes an illustration showing that even Michael, the mightiest of angels, when confronting the devil, didn't presume he could condemn him, himself. Instead, he leaves the rebuke to God. And so living in a culture and context that is almost 2,000 years removed from Jude's, getting comfortable with the message of verse 8 and 9 takes some time and a bit of digging. But at the end of it, the charge against the false teachers is short and to the point. False teachers were dismissing the power of the spiritual realm. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And our teachers and leaders and we ourselves must be acutely aware of this. And so verse 10 is a final condemnation. It begins with a restatement of the fact that these false teachers blaspheme the spiritual realm that they don't take seriously, and with another nod to their immoral sexual behavior with a reference to unreasoning instinctive animals, Jude ends with the same description of the final and lasting sentence of destruction we saw in the Old Testament examples prior. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. 
And so Jude's warnings are very clear. False teaching leads to destruction. We see a crescendo of destruction in the Old Testament examples in verses 5 to 7. Physical death, verse 5. Binding in darkness, verse 6. And punishment of eternal fire, in verse 7. We see the application of the charges against false teachers in verses 8 to 10. And hopefully we come to understand that the root, roots of so much, if not all, of this false teaching are found in rebelling against God's rules for the narrow road of life. In each of the Old Testament examples, Jude provides a plurality of individuals. In the cases of Israel and Sodom and Gomorrah, an overwhelming majority, in fact, of individuals proposed a teaching or truth that wasn't true. They proposed a teaching that was contrary to God's design, contrary to God's direction, and contrary to God's dominion. And while the book of Jude is written to believers, the message to unbelievers is plain to see. In the absence of accepting God and His truth, the outcome is death and eternal separation. The message to believers is a warning about being drawn into false teaching and the dangerous consequences of this false teaching. As Josh and the worship team come, I want to draw our attention back to verse 4, which lays out the critical point for us. God's grace is not there to facilitate or enable disobedient lifestyles. God's grace is there to save us. God has a design for the role of men and women in the home. God has a design for the role of men and women in the church. God gives direction for how we are to submit to one another within the body of Christ and those in authority over us. And God alone has dominion over His and only His redemptive work in history. God's direction, God's design, and God's dominion are non-negotiable. We may not be comfortable with God's design to have wives submit to their husbands. We may not be comfortable with God's design to have husbands deny themselves for the sake of their wives and families. We may not be comfortable with God's direction to exclude women from certain leadership roles as outlined in Scripture. We may not be comfortable with God's direction for how we are to submit to the local church and the local elders. We may not be comfortable with God's dominion over a hurting and evil world. And we may not be comfortable with God's dominion over whom he chooses to save. But it was never about anyone's comfort. God's design was the perfect orchestration and organization for how we should live. Since the beginning of time, God's dominion contemplated his rescue for creation. And his direction for both his creation and his own son was always pointing towards the cross. As Jesus walks this road to the cross, he too sees little comfort. He is about to complete the Father's plan of redemption. He's about to pay the penalty for all the rebellion through all of time, for every false teaching by every false teacher. And if you haven't accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, don't wait. His dominion will prevail. Sin will be separated from him for all eternity. And if you have accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, don't be fooled. Don't be seduced, and don't get comfortable. Be vigilant and ruthless in abolishing all forms 
of false teaching in and around yourself.